This talk was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church, as a part of the 2020 Virtual Leadership Project. For more information on VLP and Campus Outreach Minneapolis, visit cominneapolis.org. My name is Zach Simmons, and uh, I'm on staff with Campus Outreach at the University of Minnesota, and um, I'm married. My wife's name is Justine. She's actually on here. If you scroll over, her name is Teeny Bop. And Zach, that's the name that we use on Zoom these days. And um, we have two kids uh, out of the oven. Uh, William is four. He's going to be five in September. And I wish I had put pictures up. I missed this opportunity. But William is uh, a crazy, crazy little guy. So he has a wild imagination and will tell you a ton of different stories. Um, he tends to be attracted to certain toys and keeps holds on to them for a really long time. So currently, I mean, he has a sword. We bought him a sword when he was four, when he turned four, it's a wooden sword. And he treats that thing pretty much like Golem treated the one ring to rule them all. Um, he, I've literally heard him say my precious. He said, he said, it's precious to me. He's told me that before. Um, and so that's a little bit of idolatry we have to work with. Um, but uh, oh, he also currently over the weekend, he found some goggles that he calls guggles and he's been wearing those as well. Um, but he's, he's really fun. And then Sullivan is three and um, Sullivan loves to help. He is a very competent little three-year-old. Again, I wish I had pictures for you guys. They're so cute. But Sullivan, um, he, at, two weeks ago, he cracked all the eggs in the morning, put them into a bowl, poured them in the pan, mixed them around, and then I kind of helped him with when, <laughs> when they were actually done. Um, and, then we, and then we ate them. So he loves to help and loves to learn new things. Um, but we love our boys and we have a little girl that's, that's due in um, at the end of August, but it, we, I mean, we might have her any day. It's just one of those things. So um, we're really excited about having a little girl in the family. So I, I was thinking of childhood games and that's like what I do right now. We play hide and seek all the time. And um, my favorite thing to do is have William and Sullivan count and then I go and hide because my hiding places are a lot better than theirs. And <laughs> then I jump out and scare them. And there's just nothing more satisfying than scaring the living daylights out of your children. It's just, I can't explain it. It's really fun. So um, enough about, about me and my family. Um, my wife is probably upset with me now, but um, tonight we're gonna be talking about Jesus as King and how he fulfills the role of King in the Bible. And uh, so if you wanna go to the outline, Brianna, um, I've got three points. The first one is Jesus' kingship displays his majesty, his kingship delights in meekness, and his kingship deserves supreme authority. And um, so what we're going to do is, in the first point, we're really going to look from the Old Testament into when Jesus comes and see how God really is obsessed with um, displaying his majesty. And this theme of kingdom runs, it is a um, a vast theme in the Bible. It's a really, really large theme, and we're not going to be able to cover most of it tonight. We're going to be able to cover a really small bit of it, but um, he loves to display his majesty as king. Um, and then we're going to go into a specific picture of Jesus um, while he was on earth and really when he was on the cross and how that displayed his kingship. And then we're going to end with talking about what that should mean for us specifically. And my main point, if you guys could walk away with anything, it would be that Jesus deserves supreme authority in your life. And I want that for my life, and I want you to want that for your life. Um, I think of John um, 1, I think verse 5, or John 1, verse 6. 
um, where it says, you know, John the Baptist came right before Jesus and told people about Jesus. And he said he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And I read that a few years ago and felt like that feels right. I want that. As a Christian, there's nothing that I want more than just to be able to bear witness to the light. And um, so that's what I want for you guys too, that you would want Jesus to be king and you would want to, to hold him up as king. So, so let's dive in. First point, Jesus' kingship displays his majesty. We're going to start right at creation. So um, at creation, Jesus, God, decreed his majesty. So if you want to go to the, the verses, um, Genesis 1-3, it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now, how, what does it say about him being a king? Well, this was a decree, and it happened. He said it, and it happened. I, I just, it's an amazing, like, what happened there? <laughs> Let there be light. And then all of a sudden, what did that look like? I mean, the fourth day was when the sun and the moon were created. So what did it look like that all of a sudden there was light? But he, he spoke, he spoke it into existence and it happened. He decreed it. Um, he had dominion and authority to, to create all things. And Colossians 1.16 says, For by all things, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So Jesus created everything. Colossians is talking specifically about Jesus. He created all things from the very beginning, everything. And all things were created through him and for him. So really simply, Jesus created everything for himself. And that is our notion of king, right? Kings please themselves. They think about themselves. And it's right for, for God to think about himself in that way and for him to create things for himself. That doesn't, it's not a knock on us at all. That's actually the best possible thing. But that's what the Bible says. He created all things for himself. He is the source of creation and he is also the purpose of creation. So we're going to keep moving. A little later on in the Bible, you know, Adam and Eve sinned, they ate the fruit. And then God says um, to Abraham a few generations later, I'm going to make you um, the father of many nations. People are going to bless you. And then uh, Abraham's offspring are sent into captivity in Egypt, and they're there for 430 years. And they get out of Egypt, and right away, right when they get out of Egypt, God says this. He says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. See that kingdom, kingship? For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall say and speak to the people of Israel. So God was talking to Moses and told him to say that. So what I want you to get away is, he, um, he, from the very beginning, when he pulled them out of Israel, from he pulled them out of Egypt, when he was going to the promised land, he was saying, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Why did he choose them? Because he wanted them to be a holy nation for himself. So let's keep going. So then after that, God makes allowance for a king who would help Israel to be a holy nation to God. So before Moses dies, before they get in the promised land, a little while after Exodus, he says this in Deuteronomy. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he's saying, you can have a king right after that. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but um, I don't know if you've ever transcribed anything, but um, you should try it sometime. I've um, Try sitting down and transcribing one of the, the letters in the New Testament. They're, they're pretty small. But when you write something out, there is a, 
an affection that you begin to grow for the words that you're writing out. And so just imagine, God is saying, you can have a king, but every king is going to write out the books of the law. So there's five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then they have to take the text that they wrote out on a scroll and bring it to the Levitical priesthood to make sure that it's accurate. And they are going to keep that their entire life. Why? Because God wants them to be a holy nation before him. So who has ultimate authority? God does, not the king. God has ultimate authority. And so they can have a king, but his purpose is to draw them back to God. Okay, so let's keep going. Uh, Then we see Israel wants a king to be like the other nations. So not to be a holy nation, to be like the other nations. They wanted a king who was going to judge over them and who was going to fight their battles for them. So um, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 to 7, he says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, man, I heard, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And it says right after that, that the thing displeased Samuel. And then God says, uh, don't take offense to it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So the, the desire to have a king wasn't a bad desire, but it was the motivation behind it. And the motivation was they didn't want to be a holy nation. Set apart, that's what holiness means, to be set apart. They wanted to be like all the other nations. Um, they didn't want God to be their king anymore. And perhaps maybe it was because they didn't have as much control. They couldn't see God. It, it's easier to feel like you're in control when you, when you have someone in front of you who's, who's leading you. So um, then after that, um, God makes a promise to David. He, he creates a covenant with David. Why? Why does he create a covenant with David? Because David really does desire that people will be a holy nation. The people of God would be a holy nation to him. So we see in 1 Samuel chapter 13, God strips the kingdom away from Saul, who Samuel put into place as the king when the elders came to him. He put Saul in place and God stripped it away from him and said, because you haven't walked with God, I'm going to take it away from you. And the Lord has sought one who is a man after his own heart. Again, somebody who would want God, who want to honor God and make things about him. And then 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is the great Davidic covenant that um, is a theme from here all the way through the rest of the Bible, all the way into Revelation to the very end. It says, when your days are fulfilled, God is saying this to, to King David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will make up your offspring, or I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God made a covenant with David because David was a man after God's own heart. He was not perfect, but he did desire for the nation of Israel to honor God. And he desired personally to honor God with his life. And many of the Psalms we get from David, we see him pouring his heart out to God and trusting God in really, really hard, hard situations. And so um, after that, the worst happens. So there are many kings. Um, after, after that, you know, David has a son named Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived. But Solomon, at the end of his life, or maybe in the middle of his life, walked away from the Lord and brought a ton of idols into Israel. And because of that, um, a prophet came to Solomon and said, We're gonna, God is going to split the kingdom from you. But because of your, your father, because of the promise we have of your father, you're still, you're, your um, offspring is still going to have one tribe out of the 12 tribes, you're still going to have one tribe, but the rest of it's going to be taken away from you. And so there's a split and there's the kingdom of Judah, which is the tribe, and then the kingdom of Israel, which is the rest of the tribes. And out of those two, there are 39 different kings. And out of those 39 different kings, 
there were only four that pleased the Lord. So um, if you go to the next slide, you'll see this is an example of how the Bible talks about these kings. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Tirzah, and he reigned 24 years. Now this is 30, verse 34. This is how it talks about all the kings. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? He walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So Jeroboam had put golden calves up at um, Samaria, and everybody went and they worshipped these golden calves. And all the kings that were considered evil, it was because they were pushing the people away from being a holy nation before God. They didn't honor him as God, as creator, as the one who deserved glory. They wanted glory for themselves, and so they created idols to get what they wanted. And so um, in the midst of this, there's many prophets, prophets that come to the kings, and they say, um, you guys are going to be taken away into captivity. So an empire called the Assyrian Empire took the Israelites into captivity, and then shortly afterwards, the Babylonians came along and kicked tail, and defeated the Assyrians, and then took the, Jew, um, the kingdom of Judah, all of them, into captivity in, in Babylon. And so that was all prophesied. Jeremiah and Isaiah and all the prophets, they talk about um, how God is basically going to judge the kings of, of Israel and push all of the people into, into captivity. And yet, at the same time, in the middle of captivity, Daniel is in Babylon at this time, and he says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So this is significant because think about this. You are in Babylon, in captivity, away from your homeland. You've been um, uh, enslaved there. And... Uh, one of your prophets says that there's going to be one that comes that, that, that is going to fulfill the promise of David. It's, we're still going to have a king who is going to reign forever. What hope you would feel for that to come, even though you're, you're, in, you're in captivity in Babylon. Isaiah says something similar, and we, we studied this this last week. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. If you go down a little bit, he says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So we know that the person who's going to come was a Jew. He was from the line of David. And so what great hope that they would feel that someday there was going to be a king who would right every wrong, who would avenge all of their enemies, who would make the people actually walk with the Lord. And then there's silence. So um, on the timeline, there's just, there's absolute silence. So brilliant, brilliant. if you want to go to the next slide. Um, there's absolute silence for uh, 450 years or, so, or something like that before Jesus comes. And um, actually, if you want to go right before that, that, that verse, we want, to, we want to look at that verse. Okay, so it, after Isaiah, after the promise is made that a king is going to come, God says this, why am I still being faithful to you? And this is what he says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. My glory I will not give to another. What God is saying is that he is glorious in a way that nobody else is. We cannot play the judge of God. He is the judge. He is the rightful king, and he deserves all glory. And his faithfulness to Israel was because he is adamantly committed to displaying his own majesty. So um, that kind of concludes the Old Testament. 
And then there's just silence until Jesus comes. And the way Jesus comes is as a mighty king. No, he doesn't. He doesn't come. But if you were a Jew at the time, you would think that. You would think he's going to come and he's going to avenge all of our enemies. Um, and imagine you have been really slighted by someone. I bet all of you have experienced this before. You, yeah, I don't know if it was in high school or if it's in college where somebody has hurt your feelings or made you feel embarrassed in front of other people and you are just thinking about ways that you are going to get them back, right? You're going to get vengeance some way. And then think on a little bigger scale, the Israelites went from captivity from Assyria to Babylon, then to the Greeks while there was silence, and then to the Romans. And now they are in Roman captivity. The, the Romans are controlling the area of Israel. And so uh, I have a clip here that I think really shows what vengeance may feel like. And you guys, you guys may have experienced this, so. Oh gosh, I love that. I think that's so funny. Um, that's not even relevant. I just wanted to show that video. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, <laughs> I think I think sometimes we can we can feel a, a desire for vengeance that feels a little absurd, and sometimes you can get carried away with yourself. But um, but the Jews really did feel like if a king comes, he is going to kick tail, and he's going to get us out of this situation. And so. They're in Roman captivity. They were thinking that he was going to liberate them from the Romans. And you even see this with Jesus' disciples. Peter calls Jesus Christ. He says, you are the son of God. You're the promised king to come. And then right after that, Jesus says, good. I'm glad you said that. And I'm going to go die because um, that's what I came to do. And then Peter rebukes him because he didn't get it. He didn't understand what it meant that Jesus really was king and why he came and so what the Jews didn't understand and what people didn't understand at his time and what I think maybe we don't even understand now is that Jesus came in meekness. What does that word mean? We never use it. So um, meekness means quiet, gentle, easily imposed on, perhaps submissive. Jesus came in a way that was quiet and gentle and he clearly was easily imposed on because he died. He had all the power and all the authority, but he didn't use it. He was submissive um, to the, the authorities, even the authorities were in the wrong. He was meek in how he came. And I think that his meekness really displays his majesty. And so I want to show two, point, two ways I think that, that that's true. The first is Jesus suffered willingly. So it's not like Jesus was caught in a trap and um, he couldn't get out of it. It's not like, well, man, if Jesus just hadn't been in the garden at that time, then things would have been okay. But as you see, Matthew 28, verse 53, it says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So right before this, Peter, so let's back up. So Jesus is in the garden and he's praying and Judas, the betrayer, comes with a bunch of guards and is going to arrest Jesus and bring him to the Pharisees. This is the night before he dies. Jesus knows this is coming. That's why he's out in the garden praying. He knows it's coming. Peter is out there and he was supposed to pray with him, but instead he fell asleep. But now's his chance to shine. So when Jesus is about to be arrested, Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off an ear of a guy. And Jesus is like, put, put your sword away. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So what we learn from that is Jesus died willingly. He had the power and the authority to get out of it at any point in time, but he chose not to. So he endured beatings and whips to where his skin was completely ripped off. He was unrecognizable. 
He experienced mockery. Can you imagine being the king, the rightful king of the universe? You said, let there be light. And people who you created are mocking you. That would be incredible to, to deal with. Shameful exposure. He probably was naked when he died. Um, rejection from everybody. Not only rejection from those who didn't like him, but his disciples ran away. Rejection from the two thieves who he was being killed with on the cross next to him. And then ultimately, his, his father in heaven rejected him. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so he was utterly alone. And at any point, he could have changed the situation. But he didn't. And so his willingness, even though he had all of the power, his willingness displays the intensity of his love for us. And that should be a great comfort to us Christians. The God of the universe who had all the power willingly, step by step, set his face like flint at the cross and went to it so that he could pay the penalty for our sin. The second thing I want to point out is that he suffered needlessly. That may sound interesting or like I should have used a different word, but what I mean by that is this. Um, God did not need us. You could suffer willingly for somebody if you felt like you needed them. And in fact, probably if my wife was in danger, there would be selfish motive um, for me to protect her because I don't want to be lonely and I love her and I can't imagine life without her. It would just be, life would feel so wrong without my wife. And um, yet Jesus had, had no, he had no need of us and yet he still went to the cross. So you can see in Psalm um, chapter 50, verse 12, he says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. He had no needs. He wasn't insecure. He wasn't um, jealous in the way that it's like, you know, somehow it would have made him feel better about himself if we liked him or if we were friends with him. We were enemies of God. We didn't want him. And yet he still went forward needlessly. He didn't need it, but he, but he did it anyways. And that shows us that his love for us is completely free, unbegrudging. The king is welcoming us into his kingdom, completely free of charge, no strings attached. He suffered needlessly, doesn't need us. He suffered willingly. He intensely loves us. And, you know, if, if we see in the Old Testament so clearly that God is adamantly committed to his majesty and his glory, we see in the suffering of Jesus that God is adamantly committed to those whom he loves. He will do whatever it takes. He will die on a cross, become obedient to the point of death, even on a cross, whatever it takes for the sake of his subjects, because he loves them. He will always fight for the good of his subjects. He will always fight to protect them. That is Jesus. And so the importance of, of Jesus' meekness is if he would have come in power then the Jewish nation would have ruled, but people wouldn't have been able to come free of charge. It would have been a completely different situation, but Jesus did come in meekness. So um, here's, here's the importance of his meekness. Without Jesus, here, can you go back? Without Jesus suffering meekly, there would only be weeping. And here's what I mean by that. If you go to Revelation, so we're going all the way to the end of the Bible, we're gonna, we're gonna uh, see the bookends of this. Revelation chapter 5, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, and on it was written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel 
proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, so for some context, the scroll is basically who's able to open the scroll and interpret all of history, all of what's happened so far. Um, who is able to open it up, interpret it, and to make all things right, to say um, what is true. And he was saying nobody was worthy. And so he wept. But then right after that, we see an elder says to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne of the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so just, I love that picture. That, that is such a good picture of meekness. He was a lamb that was standing, yet he looked as though he had been slain. And he was the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was both the lamb and he was the lion. God delights. He delights in displaying his majesty through his meekness. Jesus came as a baby. He wore diapers. His whole life was filled with meekness, and yet he was king of all. He was holding all things together. That is the God that we serve. He, he was willing to get down on our level so that he could save us. So because Jesus came uh, meekly, God created a new kingdom where there would be someone from every tribe, every tongue, every nation and language, and forevermore people would worship him. Why? Because of their own merits? No because of the lion of the tribe of Judah, who was the lamb who was slain, the one who was willing to suffer in meekness so that we could be raised in glory with him for all eternity. And so um, now here's the bookend. We saw right after Egypt came, or right after Israel came out of Egypt in Exodus, he said that he wanted to make them a kingdom of priests to God. Now we see in Revelation 1, verse five and six, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us, a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That, that is the culmination of everything that we've been talking about. Right? We have been called into a kingdom so that we might be priests to God, that we might be a holy nation, that we might be able to display the excellencies of him who loved us, who called us out of darkness. And John, in worship, just says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He is worthy. So um, the next uh, slide, Jesus' kingship observes supreme authority in our life. So there's a few, few ways that this plays out. Um, I think a, a really good verse for this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. I quoted a little bit, but here's what it says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you had put Jesus on the cross, but now you bathe in the blood of Christ who was on the cross. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Jesus being king means that if we enter into a new kingdom, we can't have our own little kingdoms anymore. We can't live any way that we want to live. We have to live in order, it, that, with what is right with the kingdom. And what is right with the kingdom is what displays the majesty of God. And if you are a Christian today, 
then your heartbeat is that you want God to be honored. And if you want God to be honored, then that means he should have supreme authority in your life. I don't mean 95%. I don't mean there's some things that you haven't told to anybody, but that's okay because God knows. I mean, he should have supreme authority in your life. So you should be willing to lay everything down, every hobby, every pursuit in your life, all things, whether it's your girlfriend or your boyfriend, or whether it's what you're going to do for the rest of your life, <laughs> whether it's um, a new fitness plan that you want to be on. I'm really into kettlebells right now. I'll talk to you later about it. But whether it's a new fitness plan you want to get on, doesn't matter what it is. God should have supreme authority over your life, and you should have a say into why you are doing it. Are you doing it because you love God and because you want to enjoy his creation? Or are you doing it because you think that it's going to give you happiness and you're seeking for satisfaction outside of Christ? And so, um, so I have three questions for you that I think can help give you categories um, for whether or not you're really giving Jesus authority in your life. So the first one is this. Who or what are you giving authority to tell you what is right? So where is your head knowledge coming from? And the head, you know, connected to your mouth and your actions, where are you getting that from? Who's telling you what to do? Who's, who's telling you um, what is good and honorable and pleasing to the Lord? And what is it? And um, th there can be so many different answers to this. It could be um, social media. It could be Twitter. You know, it could be um, famous people that we really like. It could be theologians or upcoming theologians that we like because they have a certain angle on things. Um, it could be our parents and our family. It could be a lot of different things. It could just be ourselves and our own desires. It could be a lot of different things. Who should it be? It should be Jesus, right? And if it's Jesus, then that means that we need to know the word of God deeply. And we can't just like the things that, that we like and get rid of the other things. So um, I listened to a sermon by a pastor in Philadelphia named Eric Mason. He's with Epiphany Fellowship. They've, uh, they have a band named Doxa, D-O-X-A. Highly recommend. They're really, really good. But um, in this sermon, he's talking about the preeminence of Christ. And, um, and he says, when you're looking at the Bible and wanting to submit yourself to Christ, it's similar to eating food. And Eric is a, a bigger guy. And he said, I used to only eat food because it was good. But now I'm starting to eat food because it is right for me <laughs> it's healthy for me but the transition from eating just food that I enjoy to food that is healthy for me is difficult because it doesn't taste as good however over time those taste buds change and the things that you eat you become accustomed to and you like them and in the same way for all of us there are things in the Bible that we don't like and I want to challenge you to consider do you not like them because you have your own kingdom and your own way of thinking about things? And do you need to acclimate your tastes to what the king would say is right as opposed to what you would say is right? So that's the first question. Who or what are you giving authority to tell you what is right? The second question is, um, who or what are you giving authority to tell you who you are? And this is a, this is a deep personal question. Um, I think one of the, one of the, the big uh, influences in our life, honestly, is Satan. Satan is the father of all lies in Job. It says he's the accuser. And um, in Ephesians, Paul says that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with spiritual forces and the darkness, the, the spiritual powers of the air. Um, we wrestle with demons who are trying to get us away from believing that we are in the kingdom of God. 
They want us to act like animals. They don't want us to act like children of God, uh, sons and daughters of the king. And so um, that's a big one. Another one could be family or friends are telling you who you are. It could be an experience that you had that was difficult when you were younger that's telling you who you are and you've decided who you are because of that. And so personal example for me, um, my whole life, I have been the brunt of most jokes. Thanks, Gloria. Um, no, kidding. Um, no, actually, honestly, before we started this thing, I said, Gloria, you don't like making fun of people. And she was like, yes, I do. I can make fun of people. And I was like, make fun of me. And then she really went after me um, during the MC. But uh, so uh, it, my whole life, that, which is completely an aside, that was, that was great. Um, my whole life, I um, have had a joking edge to me. The video I showed in this um, and uh, I think for a lot of years I kind of believed that my life was going to amount to a joke that I couldn't be taken seriously and so um, one of the things that I, I really it, it's like it was so funny it was like I would either combat it by working really really hard and saying I'm gonna be incredibly responsible and I'm going to get everything done and I'm gonna be a really impressive human being I'm gonna be very talented and know how to do a lot of different things People are going to want to interact with me because I'm so well-rounded. And then there'd be other times where I would feel like a failure. And in those times, I just kind of curl up into a ball <laughs> and go into my room. And all I want to do is read Lord of the Rings. Um, so <laughs> that, that, that happens to me. And I think all of us have lies that we believe about ourselves. We are giving authority to ourselves or other people to say who we are. But if you are a Christian, then you are beloved. You are a child. You are a son. And what I mean by that is whether you're a girl or you're a boy, a son, you are, an, you are getting the inheritance. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We are gaining the kingdom of God. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation before God. And don't miss this. Exodus 19, he treasures us. Absolutely adores us that's who we are and if you don't believe that then you've got some work to do who else are you giving authority to answer that question think about it who are you giving authority to tell you that you're something other than that because that's who you are and if you're that way then we should function like we are that way instead of being scared all the time of our actions we should move forward boldly because we are daughters and sons of the king so lastly who or what are you giving authority to tell you what to do? And this could be such a range of things. It could be life trajectory, things that you're doing. It could be the way in which you think about um, the next year of your life and, and how you want to use it. It can be um, you know, the rhythms of your day and what you choose to prioritize. All of those things should be under the authority of Christ. He should have a say in those things. And, um, so that's, that's another category. Now, hearing those things, you may feel really overwhelmed because it's a lot to think that Jesus should have supreme authority of your life. I imagine that some of you feel worthless and, and feel like, well, there's a lot of things in my life that um, I don't uh, have under the authority of Christ. Um, and I imagine some of you say, I already struggle with anxiety, and now you're telling me there's a few other things that I need to worry about. And... Um, my point is exactly the opposite. If you really understood who you were in Christ, you would be at peace in your heart because he loves you. 
and everything will be okay. You can relax because our king, he, we've already seen it. Our king is adamantly committed to the good of his people. And um, that is my prayer for you, that you would see that. Um, so I'll, I'll just end with this. My sons, William and Sullivan, we have, um, we have several different Bibles that we've used. They've got like little toddler Bibles with stories in them and, and um, right now we're using a cool app on your phone that the Bible app created. It's for kids and it's got like 50 stories, you know, in the Bible and they're like interactive so you can click on things. And, um, and we read the story of Jesus dying on the cross and my sons were, were reading this and, and we've talked about it a little bit before, but this was three or four weeks ago, maybe, um, we're reading the story. And as we're reading it, I began to weep uncontrollably. And I couldn't understand why. And William turns to me, my oldest, he turns to me and he says, Daddy, why are you crying? And I said, because I love Jesus. And it makes me sad that, that, he's, that he had to die for us. Um, so we ended up putting them to bed. And it actually wasn't until a couple weeks later that I realized the reason. The reason is because um, on the cross, when Jesus died, what he said was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it's so striking. His meekness is so striking because in the, in the moment of extreme pain, he is praying for his enemies that they would, that they would know him. And, they, and many of them did. We see in the beginning of Acts, many of the, Peter says, you were the ones who crucified him. And many were, were convicted to the heart and they came, they came to Jesus and Jesus looking ahead to that, knew that, and was loving them even in that moment on the cross. And when I think of my sons, who are three and four years old, they don't understand the gospel fully, but I want them to so bad. I want them to get it. I want them to understand how God loves us so deeply. But that's something that the Lord has to do, and I can't do that. And it, just the inner turmoil just gets me. And so every time that we, we read the story about Jesus dying on the cross, I think, that's them. They don't get it. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's all of us. All of us have sin, so much sin, so many ways that we don't love the Lord. And yet he is gracious and he is kind to us. His mercy knows no end. It is new every morning. And so um, let me leave, with you, leave you with that. The king whom we serve, Jesus, is adamantly committed to seeking the good of his subjects. So I'll pray. God, um, I am so thankful that you are a king who loves us deeply, who is adamantly committed to our good, always. There's no point in which you take rest from that. There's no point in which you are annoyed of us and want to walk away from us. You love us deeply. You are a king who is so deserving of our honor and our submission to you. Unlike any other ruler on the earth, you deserve our submission and would we give it to you, God. I pray that students would delight in honoring you and delight in wanting to give your name praise. And so I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the 2020 Virtual Leadership Project, hosted by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Please feel free to share this message with others, but please do not charge for, edit, or alter the message in any way without the written permission of Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at cominneapolis.org.